In this episode, we will talk about bot attacks on mobile. I spoke with Alexander Hall, a reformed fraudster and founder of Dispute Defense Consultant. In his experience, if a fraudster can reliably predict what techniques will be successful, they will attempt to automate fraud with bots. In our conversation, we discussed which industries are most affected by bot attacks, the most typical bot attacks by industry, and the tactics used to build bot farms. I also talked about how session data and apartment-level location data can help companies defend against bots. Hi everyone, I'm your host, Andre Faraz, co-founder and CEO at Incognit. Welcome to Trust and Safety Mavericks, a show focused on topics related to online trust and safety and riding the next big wave. Welcome. We had some technical difficulties during the show's first few minutes, so I'll start by summarizing what we spoke about and then we'll get into the show. The first question Alex asked me was how manual exploits become bot attacks. And one of the examples I gave was around social media bots. So there are a number of fraud organizations that are basically leveraging bots, chatbots, to social engineering consumers. So what is social engineering to start, right? Social engineering is basically a technique used by fraudsters and scammers to basically convince a user that they're trustworthy. Usually they will try to convince you that part of a financial services company and they're part of the support team and they're trying to help you when in fact that is actually a fraudster trying to get information from you. So they're able to take over your bank account. So one example I gave Alex was a, a digital bank that was suffering with, with some of these chatbot attacks. And essentially what was happening was the fraudsters were creating pages on social media that basically looked very similar to the official page of the financial institution. And the automation would happen in a few different ways. The first one was around following the users that were following the original page. So basically, if I follow the social media page of my bank, there would be a bot monitoring this type of activity. It would recognize that I recently followed that page. And that is basically an indication that I'm banking with that company, right? So the bot would immediately follow me back as if they were trying to interact with me. But the page was actually fake. It looked very similar, but it wasn't the official one. But as a user, I would probably not notice that that was a fake page. And that page would start then interacting with me, right? So they would send a message asking for feedback on the banking product, if I wanted to share a little bit more about my experience, etc. So nothing suspicious, right? And at some point, this page would then send me a message with information about a, a transaction that I didn't make and would ask if I did that, right? So that is basically the moment in which the bot starts trying to convince me to share more sensitive information because they would share that transaction. I obviously didn't do it. And the bot would then let me know that this is potentially fraud, that my account is probably under attack. And that bot would then, trying to be helpful, obviously, would then start asking more information about my bank account, including things like my passwords or the one-time passcode that was sent to my phone via SMS when I tried to log in and things like that. And eventually, some users end up sharing this information with that bot, and then the fraudster is able to get the user's credentials, uh, take over that bank account, and steal the funds that are on that account. So this is one example here of fraudsters basically automating a process that used to be totally manual in the past, but they're now using AI and automation to make it more efficient and to be able to target more people at the same time. So that was the first question from Alex. And then the second is more related to uh, the growth of bot usage. So he asked what I'm seeing in terms of growth 
And basically, I, I share that in many industries, and particularly in the gig economy space, we're seeing a lot of growth in terms of bot usage. And gig economy in particular is falling victim to this because it's a new market with new rules. It's more complex, so most of the fraud fighting tools are, are not well prepared to serve the gig economy industry. Most of them were built for either e-commerce or financial services. But gig economy is a little bit more complex because you were talking about more actors involved in the process. So you have not only like shopper and seller, but you also have the delivery driver, for example, on the food delivery app. You have the restaurants, uh, you have the host, you have the people who are trying to date on the dating platform, etc. So it's basically a, a more complex environment. Uh, in many cases, you don't have a lot of financial information from your customers as you may have if you are a financial services company. So there's less personal information that is shared by consumers to these platforms. And in some cases, even the nature of the transaction is different, right? So for example, in, in food delivery, you don't have the same time to evaluate the risk of a transaction that a, a more traditional e-commerce site would have, right? Because you cannot freeze a transaction, for example, because the food is going to get cold. So you're forced to approve those transactions more quickly. So in general, it's a more dynamic and complex environment. Uh, and that's why we're seeing an increase in fraud and, and policy abuse cases in the gig economy, and most of them being fueled by bots. So yeah, that's basically a few of the the discussions we've had while we were having some uh, technical difficulties, and now we, we're going to jump right into the show. So I start running the recording of the episodes, and here's where we dive a little deeper on the discussion about bot attacks and fraud in general. I hope you enjoy the show and stay tuned for more. So we were talking about peer-to-peer uh, -peer marketplaces. We were talking about, I think we we're hopping into peer-to-peer -peer marketplaces from the gig economy with the, with the driving apps, the delivery apps and things like that. Yeah. So peer-to-peer -peer marketplaces, another reason why it's, it's a good target is because like the platform has much less control over what's going on because they're basically enabling two other people to connect through the platform. And then again, like chatbots, for example, uh, come into play for scams and, and things like that. Social media, that's obviously in the news all over the place, right? So Twitter, Facebook, all of these big platforms facing a lot of issues with bots and in a different way, right? These bots are not trying necessarily to make money. These bots are trying to like spread the information in a different way, etc. And then finally, financial services, right? And so the fintech apps, uh, the crypto exchanges, uh, the large financial institutions as well. There's a lot of bot activity going on there as well and mainly around credential stuffing and ways to like take over accounts at scale, but also at account opening where these bots are used to open accounts in, in bulk. Absolutely. That's a, that's a great point to make there with the financial institutions. We, when we talk about exploits that exist throughout all, those, all of those, with the exception of the fintech, all of those uh, examples that you gave are great because as you said, they're emerging technologies, they're emerging platforms, they're emerging systems, right? They're not heavily regulated and they're not mature quite yet. Add to that the fact that the users are able to interact with each other, right? It's 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 peer-to-peer -peer or it's it's a person hailing a ride from another person. It's granted they are a business owner on their own, but it's still a person that's on the other side operating this this business. And then add to that the fact that we have to bring down the time for manual analysis and it really drives home the need for automated uh, detection and to make sure that we're doing our job as efficiently and effectively as possible now the last thing you mentioned was the fintech the neobanks the cryptos uh so on and so forth it's really interesting to think about how many methods apply to financial institutions and then how each one has a way to be automated. So for example, the one that comes to mind for me immediately would be, as you said, account creation or logins. A simple CSV file plugged into an automated script can run through you know, the login forms and then couple that with the idea that these data breaches and the mail theft that's happening out in the world are giving access to more, more and more sensitive information is being leaked out into the black market. I think those are two very important factors that come into play. 
when we were discussing this, you brought up something very interesting that there were two different channels that are necessary for bots to be successful. So let's hop on into that. Describe to us the difference between the two and why these two are important. And of course, those two are mobile and web apps. Absolutely. Yeah. So in each of these channels, these bots actually behave quite differently. So for example, on starting on the web channel, the browser is a very wild environment. Like anyone, like any end user can basically like edit whatever is going on on a browser, right? You have a lot of control over that. So if, if you go to any like random website and, and you click using the right button and you start inspecting element, you can start like altering things right there. So because of this extreme flexibility that any end user has to like edit things on, on a browser, it makes it easier for a bot network to be successful in this environment, right? It's, it's also harder on a browser environment for you to detect if you are in an emulated environment, for example, and all of those things. And this basically makes it very difficult, for example, like device fingerprinting solutions to work as expected because Fuzzers already found multiple ways to, to circumvent this. You also have to add another layer of complexity here, which is that the, the main like browser, like companies like Apple, for example, that has Safari and Google with Google Chrome and Mozilla with Firefox, these institutions, they are performing a lot of changes to their browsers, including a lot of those that are intended to improve privacy. On the other hand, this is also hurting the fraud prevention platforms because they're receiving less data or less reliable data that can be used to identify potential fraud right, and, and suspicious activity. So this increases the complexity and, and the likelihood that a, a bot network would be successful in this environment. So as we know, to fight bots in this environment, the initial phases were more around uh, utilizing CAPTCHA, right? So CAPTCHA and ReCAPTCHA and all of the following versions. I believe that no user likes that. Myself, I hate when I, when I find that, but it, it is necessary in some situations. But then there are some modern technologies that came into play that can address some of these issues, but we're going to talk a little bit more about later. The other channel, which is mobile, is an environment that is a little bit more easy to control uh, because the applications, they have more access to data from the operating system. So for example, it is easier to detect an emulated environment, which is usually related directly to bot activity. And you can also, by collecting more data from the operating system, you can find other types of misconfigurations and potential vulnerabilities that you can fight for. So the mobile environment is safer in this regard. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the techniques to make it even safer during the conversation. Awesome. Uh, you brought up an interesting fact. You said that the emulated environments. So something like sandboxed virtual desktops and things like that. For those of us who are familiar with that, we know that's a more advanced technique. Someone who's more tech savvy and things like that. In your experience, would you say that if there's evidence of a virtual desktop being used, it's likely being used for nefarious reasons? If it's being used for like checkout, I understand engineers need to create virtual desktops in order to create you know, specific situations and, and things like that when they're developing their software. But for a typical commerce transaction process, would you feel it is safe to say that if, if our attendees or, or operators can identify a virtual desktop or an emulator, it should be considered suspicious? Do you think that's fair to say? Yes, that's fair to say. It doesn't mean that you, you should necessarily block that transaction, but you should try to find more information to make a better decision for sure. Absolutely. Okay. So moving on, I wanted to, we've done enough to laser focus in on methods that are specific to these, to these various industries that you mentioned, the gig economy, the peer-to-peer the -peer marketplaces, things like that. Now I want to go a little bit deeper and discuss all, well, a handful, because we can go all day when we discuss all. Let's discuss a handful of methodologies that apply to attendees that are here, right? And so we can talk about what that process looks like. And um, for that, I've listed out a few that apply to financial services. I've listed out a couple that that listen that apply to the gig economy and a couple that list that apply to social media. So for financial services, uh, the most obvious one that we've seen uh, a significant uptick for in 2022 is credential stuffing slash 
ATOs. So for those of you who don't know, uh, ATOs are account takeovers. That's where an established account lives somewhere and the bad guys get a hold of the login information one way or another, whether that's through social engineering or whether that's through compromised you know, data leaked out through a data breach, whatever it may be, and they go log into the, to the accounts. Now, as this pertains to bot attacks, um, actually, we should talk about the damage that, that this can cause. Uh, imagine what it would be if a bad guy got access to one of your financial institution's accounts, right? Imagine, think about it on a personal level. If somebody logged into your account, what could they enact? What could they change? What could they do? The login is extremely important you know, to stop. We need to make sure that they can't get in and, and, and hijack our customers' accounts. So manually speaking, that's what the process looks like. As we move into bot attacks, imagine having 30,000 potential username password combinations and automating a script that goes through and logs into these various accounts. So that's one example of how bot attacks could be leveraged for ATOs. Uh, before I move on to the next one, Andre, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I wanted to add one thing uh, specific to the financial services industry, which is right now, this is a problem, but next year and in the following years, this is going to become even bigger. And the reason why is basically because instant payments is becoming more and more of a reality. So for example, Zelle, right? Zelle still has a very small penetration, but the Fed is working on FedNow, which is supposed to be the official like instant payments platform for the, the US financial services industry. And one of the things we saw in other markets like Brazil, for example, that has PICS and India with UPI and in other places is that once you deploy instant payments at scale, once it becomes a national thing, like everybody uses, the amount of ATO grows very, very quickly. So the reason why it grows quickly is because now when I take over your account, I can move money instantly, right? I, I don't need to wait for the banks to talk to each other and settle that payment in like a couple of days. It happens in real time. So if you're not investing on those capabilities at this point, next year, once FedNow is implemented, it may be too late. Absolutely. And that drives home the idea of instant processing, instant determinations, and only further illustrates the need for effective automation across the entire CX journey. I won't go into much more detail about the other methods that I named here until, so let me list them. One was credential stuffing and ATOs. Two was account opening. It's a very similar process, compromised identity information obtained through data breaches or mail theft. The profiles are built up, CSV files are aggregated, the bots automate filling in the information in order to establish accounts. And now keep in mind with this one, actually, I'll expand a little bit. The card doesn't necessarily have to reach the fraudster in order for that account to be live, right? Yes, it's important to activate the card, but we can get a hold of that later by, by assigning authorized users or something like that. There's many ways to get a hold of the card information. The value starts with the actual owning of the account, right? So it's effectively a bucket that you can put money into. Imagine if a fraudster opens up 30 or 40 accounts and gets access to 30 or 40 ato accounts, and they start to funnel money back and forth. This further exemplifies exactly how important it's going to be when we move into these instant payments, the transactions, Zelle's, Cash App, all of these different iterations, it has the chance to explode significantly. So there's account opening, which ties into Mule accounts, which is kind of what I just described, Mule accounts being opened and funneling money into and out of. Four, Andre, this is what you and I spoke about when we were in person at Money 2020, was uh, dormant accounts, you know, something for consumers to consider are accounts that they had 10, 12 years ago that are no longer active. Well, imagine, actually, I'll let you speak to it. What are some vulnerabilities that a consumer might face if someone were to get a hold of a dormant account? Yeah, well, let's assume that, for example, that consumer has a pretty good credit score, right? And I take over your dormant account. You don't even know this. You don't even use it. You won't know what's going on. But because of your very high credit score, I can go on that account and, for example, ask for a loan, right? And then funnel that money into a new account or a fake account that I've opened before, right? At some point, the bank is going to knock on your door and say like, hey, <laughs> your payment is overdue. And you would be like, what? What What did I do? Like, uh, I wasn't using this account. Well, someone was, and someone took a lot of money from us. Absolutely. Yeah. That was the, when we when we got onto that topic, I thought that was, that was really crazy because we don't hear that spoken about very often.
As we wrap up financial services and financial institutions, I think it's very important to consider that everything that we've outlined up to this point is the automation by a single bot device automating manual exploits. Well, this is the first time where we'll go ahead and start to mention the idea of fraud farms, bot farms. Andre, so far we've spoken about manual exploits. We've spoken about bot automation. This, I think this is a good opportunity to introduce us to what bot farms are. Go ahead and take it away. Perfect. Yeah, so this concept of, of bot farms actually started in the digital advertising space because there were a lot of like apps and websites that they made money by basically having people coming to their website and clicking on the ads, right? So that was the way they monetized. And basically some of these applications, some of these websites started using what's known as uh, bot farms, right? And in this case, or, or click farms. In this case, there were like a huge number of like smartphones or computers in a single place where these computers were basically clicking on those ads all the time and making money to the website or the app, right? But then the same concept is now being applied for fraud in, in a more intensive way. Uh, so the same concept applies, right? A single location with multiple devices, like usually hundreds of devices, all of this, these devices running automated scripts, creating fake accounts, taking over existing accounts, and doing all, all sorts of things, right? And the reason why this is very challenging is because on the fraud fighter side, you're only seeing like a huge number of devices doing like similar things, but you're not able to connect all of those devices to the same individual, for example, or to the same place. So this makes it a lot more challenging. You think there is a lot of people attacking you, sometimes it's only one person. Absolutely. And I think that's, we'll, we'll get into that in the strategy, but you just introduced something that I that I write about regularly, which is the dimensions of fraud prevention. We tend to get very granular when we do our analyses. We, we look at a single transaction, we look at a single account, we, we try to tell the story from beginning to end along one linear path. However, this data point here being IP address has been seen across 50 or 60 accounts. This device ID, this device fingerprint data point, this geolocation has been seen, but we're so far trending. I don't want to be rude. We're, we're like trending towards only isolating one use case and going down. We need to expand out to what I call the third dimension of fraud prevention, which is to see how we can best cross-reference data points across accounts and across transactions. Very important uh, in a holistic strategy development process. Thank you, sir. Moving on from there, uh, we have the gig economy talking about credential stuffing and ATOs. It's effectively the same process. It's an established account, ATOs, you know, get going there. Uh, is there anything you want to add that changes this from financial services to gig economy? That's pretty much the same. Okay. Yeah. And then in social media, okay, we had, we had the ATOs, then we had social engineering for credential phishing. Um, yeah, let's touch on that because you had mentioned social engineering before, and I think you gave a good explanation for what this is. But let's dive into uh, an additional use case and drive home what the risk is to consumers when their social media accounts, when you think you're interacting with your friend and you're not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, a lot goes on in, in social media because it's obviously a much less regulated environment. Again, like the rules are not set for everybody. Each company will have a different policy. Each company will have a different set of authentication factors they put in place. So for example, on Twitter, I, I remember that there was a study that revealed that only 2.5% of Twitter users had uh, 2FA enabled. So it makes it easier to take over an account there. And all sorts of things can happen, right? Because you can either create a fake account on social media that, for example, mimics a um, financial institution, right? And, and start interacting with people who follow the official page of the financial institution, because they're basically saying like, I am banking with this company, right? When, when you follow the, the page of a bank, you're usually saying to the world, like, this is the bank I'm, I'm using. So the fraudster already has that intel, right? And, and can create a, a similar page that will follow you back and start talking to you, et cetera. That's one of the most used forms of social engineering on the social media platforms. The other is really around taking over existing accounts, right? So if I take over your account, I will be able to access your entire network, right? And people trust you, right? People have had interactions with you in the past. 
So if you eventually start asking for more information from them, having bring it a, a good excuse, some of them will fall for it, right? And, and will start giving information, not to you. They think they're giving that information to you, but they're actually given to the fraudster who just took over your account, right? So social media is a great channel for fraudsters to do those things because it's much easier to attack than other places. So it's a great place to like basically just acquire information, right? And then it ends up being used for all sorts of social engineering scams. And what is challenging here is that the like financial services companies, the gig economy apps, they don't have the visibility, right? They can't see that data. The, the data is sitting on the social media platforms, um, like data centers, not on yours. So it makes it a little bit more challenging. Absolutely. We just got a question in from Matthew McCarthy. He says, any instances where fraudsters are leveraging LinkedIn for this kind of information? I do have a use case, but I'll, I'll first uh, pass over to Andre. Yeah, well, absolutely, right? Because on LinkedIn, you, you're basically revealing a lot of information about like where you work and potentially how much you make based on your role, for example. So that's a great place for a fraudster to acquire information and define who are their targets, for example. And once they're there, once they're defining their targets, they also can find ways to reach out to you with opportunities, with things that you may be interested in because they know in which field you work, right? So, so they already have uh, some information to open a conversation with you that you may be interested in. So there are a lot of bots on LinkedIn networks for sure. Every single day I receive a lot of people uh, adding me on LinkedIn that when I look at it, it's like, oh, this is a bot. <laughs> Obviously, it's hard to tell, but I, I try not to accept people that I don't know on LinkedIn because of that. Yeah. And that's definitely something that we're all experiencing. Bot attacks, people reaching out, creating these these tiny accounts that are not fleshed out by any means, but yet they list all this experience and all this. this those are telltale signs, relatively low connections, relatively low content and posts. And then they reach out to, to add you. They're really just doing research into, into people. That's how I view it. They're trying to connect with you so they get access to more information on your LinkedIn to drive forward any number of methods. The one use case that I wanted to speak to was kind of interesting, and I've seen more posts about it since, is uh, somebody claiming to be a president or CEO or a shareholder of an organization that you are affiliated with in some way. So the way that this came across my profile was uh, I currently serve on the board of advisors for UNLV, the, the college here in Vegas. And someone reached out to me claiming to be the president of UNLV or something like that and asked me, hey, you know, Alexander, um, do you remember me? We met at an event last year, blah, 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 blah. We need to have a conversation. So of course I'm like, okay, did we? Whatever. So I, I engaged. And then about three volleys, three, three back and forths later, uh, he asked me to run to Walmart and pick up gift cards for a meeting that he's heading into. Uh, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it was it was it got pretty straightforward, but it was definitely time consuming, and and it, and it made me wonder what was going on. So, best practice for that is to go ahead and notify everybody else that you might be associated with in that particular uh, arrangement. Let them know that you encountered this. Send screenshots. Uh, definitely tell the person that they're posing to be uh, that this is happening, and then hopefully you nip it in the bud. So yeah, that's my fun little story. LinkedIn is also a great place to send PDF files because given it's a, a professional network, it's, it's very common for people to like send you like their curriculum, for example, using a PDF file and all sorts of things can be there. <laughs> never download those PDFs. Oh yeah. Please. Yes. Never download unsolicited PDFs. Never. <laughs> Good point. Uh, Hussein uh, Jaber from Good Labs. Hey man. Uh, to your point, Alex, uh, fictitious job postings. Oh, that's another one. Fictitious job postings on LinkedIn are on the rise and they receive a lot of submissions, uh, CVs, and they often include phone numbers, emails, uh, and et cetera. 100%. One of the biggest goals for a fraudster is to aggregate and compile different data sets, right? So in to this example, we're talking about current, updated, live, organic identity information. So for a fraudster who's looking to deal with identity theft or manipulating credit profiles, something like that, it's very important to flesh out these these profiles and 
who's saying great idea um, or great mention. Uh, this is a great way to get updated because everyone keeps their LinkedIn updated. You might not update your phone number on Facebook. You might not update your email address over at Instagram, but you keep your LinkedIn updated because you want this. It's a business environment. You want to keep the prospect wine running and things like that. So yes, thank you for that, for that note. So moving forward, I want to put this all in context. We started off speaking about where bots attack. We, we've spoken about the peer-to-peer -peer marketplaces, financial institutions, the gig economies, things like that, crypto and NFTs, social media, all of these different items. I want to zoom out a little bit and speak to the process, just really get a, a summary of what we've covered so far. So one, manual exploits are being automated by the use of bots. Any method can be automated as long as the person developing the automation script or the bot is able to predict where these fields are, what the fields require, and go through the process enough times to understand where the verifications are of your system, things like that. Two, the automation through, or that, that was manual exploits moving into bots. Moving from bots to bot farms takes one device, putting through many attempts automated, to having many devices putting through many attempts that are automated. This should be scary as heck. And as we move forward, I think it is important to go in depth on the, the data that's available. So the, the question I have for you, Andre, is how are these attacks represented on the back end of financial institutions, the gig economy, social media, <laughs> and uh, the peer-to-peer -peer marketplaces? Yeah, well, this is very tricky, right? Because each bot will have would have been scripted in a different way, right? So it's hard to determine like, okay, when this happens, this is a bot, or when this doesn't happen, it's a human. But the thing here is really around identifying the patterns and uh, seeing if there is any sort of repetition. Most of the rules that people build around, for example, velocity, like if they identify that a single device is trying to open multiple accounts in a very short period of the time, they should block that device, et cetera. But these processors, they're, they're learning, right? Once you block them doing this, they're going to change how they operate, right? So for example, they, they will start spreading this across different devices. They will put some buffers to delay the attacks a little bit and, and to make it more difficult to be noticed. So in, in the end of the day, I think the most important thing is really around connecting the dots of all the data points that you collect. If you collect, for example, like session data, link that to the accounts. If you collect device IDs, link those IDs to the accounts, link that to the, the session. If you have more processes in place to verify identities, you have to break it down and, and, and measure like each data point and see if there is any pattern on those accounts that are being created. Because just setting like velocity rules is, is not going to, to help you a lot. You have to analyze much more data and try to identify like those patterns linking all the different dots you already have. Like most people already have all the data they need. They're just not analyzing it in the right ways, right? So that's one thing. Another thing is doing your best to identify if that is a real device, because a lot of this is happening on emulated environments because it, it is more scalable to do it that way, right? So if you get a single device, you can run many emulators at the same time. So a single device can turn into multiple devices just by doing that. So if we're able to detect emulators accurately, that's also a great thing, right? That's, that's a very important data point. And other things that can help you also identify bot networks is identifying if the devices, if, if you, you know that it is a real device, if there is no integrity issues with those devices. So for example, if there are remote access type of applications on that device, like a team viewer or a, a remote access Trojan of, of some sort, what can happen is the fraudster can be using someone else's device, right, to perform their activities, right? It, it, they're basically outsourcing that to someone else. So it is easier, it's less risky because even if that device gets caught, it will be harder to link that to the fraudster. So that's also something they, they would do to try to hide their identity. So try to identify anything that can remotely access that device, because that's also uh, a risk. 
And finally, behavioral data, right? And which which goes back to my original point here, which is linking all the dots and trying to identify patterns. Like if you have more and more behavioral information, you will be more able to detect those patterns. So try to get as much behavioral data as you can. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, you touched on, on many good points there. One, The one thing I want to extract from there is typically people, when they first set out to identify bot attacks, as you mentioned, their first thought is to go to velocity attacks, velocity data points, how often, how quickly, how this, how that. And that falls into the category of behavioral analytics, depending on if it's one attempt against one session or if it's one attempt across multiple sessions. Right? They typically measure it that way, but they don't consider exactly what you said, which is these automation scripts are taken into consideration that the good guys are watching for high velocity, low response time, or, or quick typing in, quick behavioral things like that. They're watching for it. So they're intentionally elongating the time that it takes for them to interact with these different forms. I think that was a great point that you mentioned that. They, so we've covered uh, session data. We've covered behavioral analytics. Now I think it's important. So that's how bot automation can uh, stands to be detected across the entire spectrum. Let's move into how bot farms have evolved from singular bots and what those bot farms are doing to, de to avoid detection. Perfect. Yeah, so bot farms are basically like a more scalable way of, of attacking with bots, right? So instead of having a single bot, you can have multiple. And in each device, you can also run multiple emulators. So it goes on and on. And the main things that these fraudsters are doing to, like, to hide these networks is really trying to make it look like separate devices, right? So how would you do that? Basically, the first thing would be to spoof location data. So for example, they're going to spoof like the IP addresses for sure, right? They don't want all of those devices to be linked to the same IP because then it will make make it very easy for whoever is on the other side to identify it. Same applies to more granular geolocation information like GPS data, for example. It's very easy to spoof GPS information as well. There are multiple ways of doing location spoofing, including fake GPS apps and, and app tempering. So that's one other thing that they'll try to do. Emulator usage, again, right? So the emulator brings a lot of scalability for processors that are using bots. So making sure that you're able to identify emulators is super important here. And yeah, like I think if, if you find those ways to identify those uh, potential risks, you will probably be able to find the bot farms. The tricky part though is very few companies are currently detecting location spoofing. Very few are able to do that. They're able to, to detect IP spoofing for sure, detect VPNs and proxies, et cetera. But GPS spoofing is, is something that is unknown for a lot of people in the space. It's more well known for like companies in the like ride hailing business and food delivery, for example, because like GPS data is core to their business. But financial institutions, for example, many of them have, have no clue how much location spoofing is going on and how important is this for a fraudster uh, to hide their true location, right? They, they don't want to get caught. Absolutely. You brought up a very good point, and that is, we have collectively, we have a lot of data um, and we can always choose to expand one way or another, whether we go deeper into session data, device fingerprinting, behavioral analytics, biometrics, we can expand almost infinitely in the amount of data that we can fold into our system. But all of the data in the world will not solve the problem if you don't know how to use the data, if you don't know how to read it, if you don't know how to cross-reference it across different use cases and identify the trends. One of my favorite terms as of late is to zoom out. So as we have this big, huge collection of data, and we're focusing on this one particular use case across this one account, across this one transaction, it's easy to get lost in all of the data. So it's important that from time to time we zoom out and we, and we take a look across our whole, all of our determinations. What are, what are any through lines that we can see relative to form submissions, relative to logins, relative to account creation or identifying behaviors and, and timelines in between maybe associating different accounts and, and beginning to pull money from accounts and transfer money out and all of these different things. We got to zoom out. So from time to time, we can get as granular as we want and we can expand our data sets as much as we want. 
very important that we zoom out and identify through lines. Um, that's what's going to help us identify the trends and put something new in place that's going to help stop the new iteration fraud. So, yeah, thank you for that. Uh, we're going to go ahead and pop into uh, in-house strategy items, uh, best practices that, that are suggested by our friend Andre here. Yeah, so Andre, go ahead and tell us, what can we do to identify automation through bots, bot farms, and into the future? Excellent. Yeah, so um, in the previous session, I was talking a lot about the data points that uh, should be leveraged for this. And as you, you brought well, like it's hard to analyze all that data, right? It's, there, there's a lot to be analyzed. So this is when machine learning becomes your friend, right? So you can use tools to, on your end, automate some of the, these analysis and find the patterns so you can like analyze what's more relevant, what has like more correlation with productivity, for example. So before even getting into like the data that will help you identify the bot attacks, what you really need to work on is on having a very well-organized data set to record all of the fraud events that you have seen and to link that to all of the session data and all of the, the data that you have associated with it. If you have that, that is the main thing that you use to then analyze and cross-reference with, with all of the other data points that I was mentioning earlier, like emulator detection and session data and behavioral analytics, et cetera, et cetera, right? That's the first and most important part. So leveraging and, and building uh, processes in-house to analyze this data and making uh, use of machine learning will, will help you do this more quickly and more efficiently. It's also important to revisit this over time because the, the fraudsters are always adapting, right? So if you set up a specific role or if you deploy a new machine learning model to detect fraud, this will have to be changed in a fill because the fraudster will notice that they're being blocked. They'll try to circumvent it in a different way and you will have to adapt as well, right? So there is not like a, a situation in which you, you would put something to run and it's just a, a set and forget type of situation. No, you, you need to keep an eye on it. Uh, you need to keep monitoring. You need to adapt your models and rules over time as fraudsters adapt to your defenses. And yeah, those, those would be my, my like most basic recommendations. And for like, depending on your application, if you don't have all the data that you think you need, you should also go after some vendors that can offer you some specific signals that can be helpful. For example, one of the, the techniques that I like more than uh, captures to detect bots is the use of behavioral biometrics, right? There are many vendors out there uh, selling this. There are some very big companies that, that are doing this type of thing, like Shape Security, for example. They were acquired a, a couple of years ago, I think, for over a billion dollars. They All they did was around detecting bots using uh, behavioral biometrics. I don't advocate for using behavioral biometrics as an authentication factor. Some people are doing that. I believe it's too risky. It's not that accurate for, for that use case. But for bot detection, it is really good, and I strongly recommend it. And other data points are more related to what Incogni does. Uh, so I'll leave it for the next session here. Awesome. Uh, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, expansive data sets. I, I, so you mentioned a lot of good data to use. Uh, one thing I'd like to add to it is the collaboration. These sessions, these educational sessions where we talk about what's being seen across the landscape. It's crazy to think that as we for people outside of fraud prevention, they don't typically relate Apple with Adidas. They would see them as two completely different companies. But in our conversations, of course, with us, we see there's so many innumerable amounts of, uh, of similarities between their operations. And when we're trying to target fraud, we see that so many items are seen across the landscape that apply to companies that otherwise you wouldn't think were directly related. You wouldn't think Chase Bank and Nike would, would fall to the same vulnerabilities or would, would have to employ similar strategies, but they do sometimes. And with that being said, I feel it's very important. That's actually why I launched this roundtable series is to, instead of only having data point, which is of course very, very important, it's very valuable to have expansive data sets. We also need to tell stories and help people understand what other merchants and what other financial institutions are seeing across the marketplace so that we know where to look to identify new behaviors. So that's one I wanted to add to that. I love what you said about the expansive data sets. Great. 
Two was moving forward and identify and being nimble. That's really what, what the idea was, was to be nimble. Understand that what we put in place today is going to be identified by fraudsters tomorrow. And now the day after tomorrow, we're going to have to make some adjustments. We don't know what that time frame is and it changes all the time, but that's something that's a realistic thing to consider. So yeah, I loved your points there. A quick question about the technology. Have you been able to tackle private browsers that use multiple connection points with the likes of Brave and... Oh, so the Tor network. Okay, yeah. Do you have anything to say about private browsers, multiple connection points like the Tor network? Yeah. Yeah, well, this is a very similar situation to the emulator detection, right? This is not necessarily fraud. You should not necessarily block that user because of that, because it, it just like may be their, their preferred browser and they're not doing anything wrong. But in a situation like this, that's the type of scenario in which you, you should keep an eye on and ask for more information, capture as many data points as you can to make a better decision because it is more risky for sure but there is no like 100% correlation to fraud. So if there was a close to 100% correlation to fraud, you should block it right away. But if that's not the case, that's the type of scenario in which you, you should collect more data. And that's interesting because it is similar because the interaction with the website still happens regardless of how it's connecting to your website. You still have to interact with it and you can still track and monitor that performance. Okay, makes sense. So here we go. We've gone over in-house strategy items. We've gone over the effect of the marketplace. We've gone over just some of the methods that can be automated across so many different industries in the marketplace. Tell us how Incognia specifically handles the heavy lifting for these different strategy items that you mentioned. What makes you guys unique in the space? Uh, your philosophy for fraud prevention. Take it over, brother. Cool. Awesome. Well, so first thing on what we do, to detect bot activity is, is basically around the device integrity issues. So Incognia has a mobile SDK that the, the customers implement on their applications and also on their websites. And basically with this, we're able to detect things like emulators, root, like remote access trojans, uh, app tempering, app cloning, those sort of things. This is the first layer and the most basic layer to identify if there is some sort of misconfiguration or, or risky situation that is highly correlated to bot activity, for example, and other types of fraud, right? So that's the, the first like core layer here. The, the second is related to behavioral analytics. So we have a device fingerprinting solution. And with that, we're able to identify if that same device has tried to open multiple accounts, access multiple accounts, those sort of things. So that's also another layer. And then finally, what really sets us apart is our geolocation technology. So as I've mentioned in the beginning, we know that spoofing IP addresses is quite easy. The same applies to GPS data. It's very easy for a fraudster to spoof GPS data, and most people are doing that. So we, we have created a proprietary technology for location that goes beyond the GPS signal, right? We, we capture data from like other sensors of the smartphone, like Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and others. And with those signals, we're able to identify the location of that device with much higher accuracy. So the GPS, for example, is able to know in which building you are. We're able to understand in which apartment, in, in which room within that apartment, that smartphone is located at or, or that computer is located at. So with this super high precision, we're able to do new things like, for example, detecting fraud farms, right? So if we see that there are multiple devices in a single room or single apartment, that is not natural that is very likely to be fraud. And if we spot any suspicious activity coming from that specific location, we would flag it as potentially a bot farm, right? So this is one of the ways that you are able to limit the scalability of the bot attacks in any other form of fraudulent activity by detecting and linking multiple devices to the same place uh, using more precise location data, right? And, and with that, there are multiple other things that can be done, like Detecting location spoofing, obviously verifying addresses. So when the user is making a purchase or opening an account, you can see if the user actually lives at that address that is being stated. That's that's a, a signal to identify the good users, not the bad ones. Trusted locations, which is basically if the user is, is logging in or, or transacting from a place that they go very frequently, it's another relevant data point for identifying the good users. So that's another thing 
that you, you should keep an eye on, which is not only trying to detect fraud specifically, but also trying to find ways that you can, with confidence, identify who are the good users, because then you can offer a great user experience for them and leave all of the tough questions for the ones that you find more suspicious, right? So, so you create friction for the ones you find suspicious, but you remove friction for the ones that you find as uh, good actors. That's awesome. Yeah. So it really, you have encapsulated with Incognia all of the items that we mentioned across this journey. Zooming out, cross-referencing data points, powerful analytics, especially with the geolocation. I remember when you first introduced me to Incognia, uh, I was highly impressed with the accuracy and how you, the unique way that you measure the geolocation there. Super awesome. And then additionally, you talked about, you touched on the philosophy behind your fraud prevention, which of course starts with zooming out across data points, cross-referencing the data points, and understanding how these data points can be leveraged for different interactions and transactions. Super powerful stuff. Great things. We're four minutes over, so I guess we need to go ahead and end it and give everybody, be cognizant of everybody's time. Tarun asks, can a private VPN still be detected? Yes. I assume yes. so. So they're, they're basically two different ways of, of detecting VPNs. Uh, the, the first and most basic form is, is by like analyzing the IP address and, and seeing if it's listed on like public databases of, of VPNs. IP addresses. So that's the basic form and that's how many companies do. But actually by analyzing the network packets, you're able to detect VPNs much more accurately, including the private VPNs. So that's the right route I, I would take. That's that's what we do at Incognia. We're much less interested in, in identifying if the IP address is suspicious and much more interested in analyzing the network data to understand if, if there's something rerouting that and altering the round trip time of a certain uh, request. That's the first time I've heard of that. That's uh, that's pretty interesting. Uh, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Andre. Uh, go ahead and take a minute and tell everybody here how they can get a hold of you, where you're going to be, if you're going to be at any events coming up. It's up. The floor is yours, brother. Absolutely. Yeah. Next year, uh, beginning of the year, I'll, I'll be at the MRC in Vegas. It's going to be in March. Besides that, I'm easy to find on email. That's the, the best channel for me. It's andre at incognit.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn. I have a lot of followers on LinkedIn, so it's, it's hard for me to read all the messages, but feel free to, to reach out over there as well. I usually take a little bit longer on that channel. So if, if you want me to respond more quickly, uh, please reach out over, over email. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, everybody. As we move forward into the new year, the next uh, session is going to be a recap of the year and strategy items to consider as we move forward into 23. Um, Andre and I look forward to seeing you guys at Money 2020 and, and MRC next year. Yeah, best of luck out there in the fields, guys. Have fun. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Trust and Safety Mavericks. Subscribe to our show to be notified about every new episode and follow Incognit and me, Andre Faraz, on LinkedIn and Twitter. <laughs>